This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to Late Night Live. I'm Tracy Holmes, filling in for Philip Adams. While much of the globe's attention remains firmly focused on Ukraine following Russia's invasion, military action continues in many other parts of the world. In the past year, several West African nations have faced unrest and military coups. We'll take a deeper look with Nicholas Hark shortly. Later, National Geographic explorer Tara Roberts shares her journey with a group of black divers dedicated to finding some of the thousands of slave ships wrecked in the Atlantic Ocean during the transatlantic slave trade. But first, it's off to the UK. And I'm pleased to welcome back our UK commentator, columnist with the Eye newspaper and a regular on Late Night Live, Ian Good morning, good evening, Ian. Hello. I suppose they're still talking in your parts about Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky and his dramatic video address to Britain's House of Commons on Tuesday in which he echoed Winston Churchill, among others. Tell us some more about that. Yeah, it's quite a weird... I mean, I've been working in Parliament, sort of looking down from the press gallery for, well, too many years now, um, well over a decade. And I haven't actually ever seen anything like that. For a start, MPs aren't supposed to clap and are usually penalised a lot for clapping, let alone standing ovations. So he received the standing ovation at the beginning and the end of his speech, probably they both went on for about a, a minute. Several MPs seem to be in tears. I don't I've never seen a foreign leader or anyone give a video address in that chamber. The whole thing was very, very odd. I mean, that's only in terms of sort of parliamentary tradition, right? It's not so odd in terms of what he's been doing. You know, he's been doing the same, you know, in Washington, he's been doing the same in Europe, and then he came to the UK to deliver the same message. Um, But it is odd. I mean, if you're used to that place, to see it in that capacity, it's quite hard to get a sense of his charisma through it. I mean, we're used to him now. And that kind of... um, very emotionally intelligent, softly spoken manner he has, which is sort of full of conviction, very, very effective. Weirdly, it's not paternal as leaders tend to be during war, but actually quite fraternal. It's a very, very unique kind of charisma and a very specific emotional and intellectual intelligence that he deploys. You can't really get it when you've got a translator talking all the time over him. So it didn't really work in that capacity. But in general, you shouldn't underestimate the effect that that had on the chamber. It was was quite significant yesterday. We'll talk about some of the substance of it, but I like the way you describe it, that it's a bit weird. It's a bit strange. We've never quite seen a war fought like this where there's such a huge social media presence from the Ukraine mm. side and the impact that that seems to be having in, in garnering support around the world, uh, he's, he's become almost like a cult figure for the times. Yeah, it's true. And it's worth, you know, what's funny is looking at him next to Boris Johnson because in a way they're kind of weirdly similar. They're both performers. I mean, literally, you know, in Zelensky's case, I mean, he was, you know, an actor, a comedian, and he's using that performer role for the politics. And you have the same with Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson is a performer. He is basically an after-dinner speaker or a late-night chat show guest. You know, he's quite funny, quite bumbling, sort of all over the place. And they've both used that performance for their political career. The thing that's different is you look at Zelensky and that mechanism, the performance mechanism, was used to deliver a politics of substance, of something that he really believed in and that really mattered. And with Boris Johnson's case, it was used to deliver narcissism and uh, an interest restricted to his own self-interest. There's no, There was nothing there to use the mechanism to deliver. But the techniques are kind of weirdly similar. So honestly, this week, thinking about them together, seeing them, you know, albeit by video screen together, it was quite interesting to compare it and made me question some of my thoughts. Because my thoughts with Boris Johnson were, we shouldn't have comedians as prime ministers, right? Well, actually, you look at Zelensky and you know, well, maybe it's not so bad to have a comedian as, as, as a political leader. It just depends on whether there's something of substance underneath it all. And in his case, there is. All right. Well, let's get to some of that because uh, he reiterated his calls for more UK support. Fill us in on the military support that Britain's provided so far and how that compares with other nations, particularly the EU nations. 
It's hard to tell. I mean, there's a lot of, um, there's certain things that we can't be told for good reason, which is that, you know, you can't just provide a list to Russia of, of all the military sort of weapons that are going there. Um, but we can tell from Ukrainian sources um, that they're very, very pleased with the extent of uh, British armed shipments over to, to Ukraine. The Britain has been pushing for this actually even weeks before the invasion. There's basically three points to the UK response to Ukraine. It's arms, it's sanctions, and it's refugees. And on that first point, and the first point only, Britain has been very successful indeed. It's been following a very sensible pathway for it. It had at the beginning to make up for the fact that quite a few European states don't really like the idea of sending weapons anywhere. I mean, most notably Germany, which is always very uh, wary of deploying weapons, of sending weapons to war zones. It has now changed that view. When the invasion started, Germany has essentially gone through a revolution in political policy, in geopolitical policy. It has changed almost all of the sort of sacred cows that it held. But for the time being, at least the one thing that we know, and when you talk to Ukrainians, when you see interviews with Ukrainian ministers, that is the one thing, and Ukrainian journalists that I've been speaking to the last few weeks, that is the thing that they really value about British support is the arms and the push from Britain for other countries to be shipping as many arms as they can into Ukraine. And where is the UK at in terms of introducing tougher sanctions on Russia? Because there had been some criticism about it being a bit slow off the mark. Oh, it's incredibly slow. And I mean, not just incredibly slow for what's happening now. I mean, incredibly slow over years, nearly a decade now. I mean, it's been about nine years that we first started saying, look, that lots of Putin's network of oligarchs, his little puppets, basically, uh, are setting up in London for the reason that they can use it as a moral and financial laundering centre. Now, nothing was done about this. In fact, quite the opposite. You look around the cabinet table and several of the figures there, including the deputy prime minister and the prime minister, you know, have received donations, funding from figures that are connected to the Putin regime through all of the Tory party's various fundraising options. And um, two million pounds have gone to the Conservative Party since Boris Johnson was made prime minister just two years ago from Russian sources. So nothing was done there for years and years on end. An economic crime bill, which would have given some powers to find out which foreign person owned shell companies used to buy London property, was promised for uh, about five years now. It, they failed to put it in the first Queen's speech. They failed to put it in the second Queen's speech. Now, this week, it has suddenly been passed. And yet, even then, it doesn't have the powers, the investigatory powers, the asset freezing powers that we know that we need in order to tackle the problem. And in fact, the Foreign Secretary herself has now admitted, look, the US and the EU are much, much faster when it comes to sanctions than we are. That's a particularly embarrassing admission, by the way, because throughout the Brexit campaign, we were told the main advantage of leaving the EU is that we'll be much more nimble, much smaller. We won't have to work through consensus. We can just do what we want. And yet when it comes to policy around Ukraine, especially on sanctions and especially on refugees, the EU, despite working with 27 member states, has been infinitely faster than the UK has. Yeah, and I just wondered if you could expand a little bit more on that because it has been interesting throwing up, uh, you know, this this counterbalance of, of what the EU is and what everybody thought it was and why you wanted to leave uh, and what this has revealed. In a way, it's an anomalous situation, right? Because, because it's so severe. It's so shocking what Putin has done here and it is a war in Europe. It's also anomalous because... It, it acts to unify European states that until now have been tearing chunks out of each other, right? So, I mean, the traditional split in Europe um, is between the West and the East. So you have much more sort of socially right states, I mean, like Poland, like Hungary, operating under pretty severe nationalist leaders, you know, who won't take refugees, let's say, for, from Syria, for instance. And then this causes the kind of tension that we see in, in the EU. Now, Poland and uh, Hungary to a much lesser extent because Orban is, you know, up to his neck in Putin apologism over the years. But nevertheless, those Eastern European states feel intensely threatened by Russia and the Western European states are appalled by what Putin has done. So it has really served to, to unify the EU and an organisation which, you know, I can't pretend otherwise, often takes an extraordinarily long time to come to decisions, is now making decisions decisions are not small decisions. I mean, you know, on refugees, they basically said anyone can come from Ukraine and you can stay for three years. We'll worry about the paperwork after that. When it comes to geopolitics, you're starting to see the EU, and this is really, I mean, this is the kind of thing that we will talk about in history books years from now. The EU is starting to adopt a military posture. You know, until now, it is an economic 
grouping. That is what it does. It wields tremendous economic power, arguably more than anywhere else in the world. But it never had any sort of military dimension to it, predominantly because there was a member state veto on that. Now, that seems to be changing. There's a lot of work to go, but you're getting this dawning realization that if Europe is to stand up for its values of liberal democracy against tyranny, it needs to have a military dimension to it. And that is an absolutely seismic and historic change. It is, isn't it? And and how threatening is that? I mean, this is part of, it gets back to the, the crux of, of the issue that Putin says he has. Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, I mean, he has managed to create the exact opposite of the world that he wants. You know, he wants, as we have seen by virtue of his disinformation campaigns and his propaganda over the last 10 years or more, a divided, weakened West. And what he has got is a completely unite, united West, and not just the West, I mean, you could go much much broader than that. You, and I would say most importantly, that, that sense of unity isn't just cooperation, but it's also uh, um, almost like the West is rediscovering its values. Right. Like for ages, you know, the idea of sort of liberal democracy and of reason and of moderation and of diversity and pluralism. All of these ideas have just started to fade away under the impact of nativism, this sort of confusion in the, in the post-Soviet world. Well, now they're back. Now, when you look at Ukraine, you look at what Ukrainians are fighting for. What is it that we think they're fighting for? Right. They're fighting for Western values. For for freedom of association. So it's right in the heart it's in the heart, and you can see that in the EU, a reaffirmation of values, and obviously lots of policy formulations follow from that, but at the heart of it is, the, is, is really that sense of value. And you can see it in the strengthening of NATO, in the relations between Europe and America. Putin is essentially creating the exact opposite of the outcome that he desired. Ian, I'm going to leave you there because you're uh, coming and going, fading into some sort of a canal where you're sitting at the moment. But we got most of that, only the odd word dropped out, and we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's Ian Dunn, columnist with The Eye newspaper and a regular here on LNL. Coming up, what's behind the recent unrest in some West African countries? Well, while our attention has been focused on the fighting in Ukraine, in West Africa, a series of military coups in the last 18 months has seen more than 2 million people displaced in the Sahel region, the effective shoreline between the Middle East and sub-Saharan Africa. The region is a crucible of climate change, population movement and jihadist attacks, where famines, religious terrorism, anti-state rebellions and arms, drugs and human trafficking are a regular feature. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres called it a microcosm of cascading global risks converging in one region. As we go to air, local media in Burkina Faso in West Africa are reporting part of Jibo near the Flashpoint northern border with Mali has been invaded by armed men, breaking a ceasefire negotiated with terrorists last year. Nicholas Hark is Al Jazeera English's West Africa correspondent. He was in Burkina Faso during the most recent coup in January and joins us from Dakar in Senegal. Nicholas, it's good to have you on the program. Tell us what you're hearing about this latest incursion into Burkina Faso. So, Tracy, this is happening in Djibo, which is the capital of the Sum region, as you explained, which is right on the edge with the border with Mali. It's on the edge of the Sahel region. And for the last couple of weeks, um, we've seen armed groups encircle this city, the city of about 60,000 to 100,000 people, essentially using the medieval tactic of laying a siege to this town. And this morning, just before we went to air, I spoke to someone from Jibo, and she was telling me that the situation there is dire. Dire because they do not have any food to eat. If this siege continues, people, she says, will die of hunger. That's how bad the situation is right now in the northern part of Burkina Faso, but also throughout uh, Burkina Faso in the north and in the east, sorry, so of the region. And 
Yep. Go ahead. Keep going. Now, what I was going to say is this, this is going to be the first major challenge for uh, Lieutenant Colonel Damiba, the new self-proclaimed president of Burkina Faso. As you mentioned, when I was in Burkina Faso, there was a coup um, and uh, the man that took over power pledged to people in Burkina Faso that he would restore the authority of the state all over the country's territory. So this is going to be his first major challenge. Tracy? And when that happened, the, the president that was deposed, um, that earned pretty much international condemnation by the United Nations. Uh, and yet people on the ground thought it was a good move. There was some popular support, wasn't there? That's right. I mean, it, it, it can come quite as a shock that this coup was met with so much celebrations. It was a coup in the waiting in many in many ways. I mean, people who were observing the Sahel had noticed how the situation, the security situation had deteriorated since the return to democracy in Burkina Faso. So in 2014, there was a popular uprising uh, where there was uh, the previous president, uh, Blaise Compaoré, that was ousted. Following that, there were democratic elections and a new president, Roque-Marc Caboret, was elected. But since he's taken power, the situation in Burkina Faso has deteriorated dramatically, specifically in the last year. In the last year, why? Because in the face of attacks from armed groups, and we're talking about armed groups linked to Al-Qaeda and ISIL, the Islamic State, uh, local affiliates that have really, uh, really increased their attacks in Burkina Faso, um, the, the the government of Rochmar Caboret um, essentially started to arm civilians. And that has caused the armed groups to target villages and civilians. They see them as legitimate um, targets. Before that, they were only targeted, targeting sorry, um, soldiers from the Burkina Faso army. So there was a switch of method or strategy from these armed groups. And we saw millions of people fleeing the north of the country to the capital of Burkina Faso. And Tracy, there was one specific event that happened late in November where um, a, an, a, an army barrack came under attack um, from armed groups linked to Al-Qaeda. Over 40 soldiers were killed. Now, when it turned out that these soldiers had gone two weeks without food ration, that they were ill-equipped using hunting guns to fight better equipped um, Al-Qaeda fighters and Islamic State fighters, that caused national condemnation. And the reaction of the president, Roque-Marc Caboret, was silence. And that deafening silence led to this coup. People who celebrated the coup are celebrating less the fall of Roque-Marc Caboret, but more the hope that this will bring change and bring security to the country. Now, I know that you spoke to a local MP. What did he have to say about who the jihadists are? So most of these fighters, according to this MP, and he's the MP, in fact, of the, the nor northern region of the Sahel, where, where, we, where we're seeing Jibo being led uh, uh, under siege. He's saying, he's saying to us that those that are fighters of Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State are only so in names. He's saying these are our brothers, our uncles, our cousins, people who live locally. They're not driven by ideology, he says, but more out of um, hunger sometimes or out of necessity in dealing with local grievances. You have to remember that these regions are, Burkina Faso itself is an isolated country. It's a landlocked country at the edge of the Sahel, bordering Mali, where there's a lot of instability on one side. And the regions that are being affected are very remote. It's these are places where the state for a number of years has largely been absent. And in the absence of the state, we've seen armed groups step in, act like uh, like the local uh, like the local mayor or the local officials, setting up their own rules and regulations, uh, banning um, children 
and and young girls from going to schools. A bit what we're seeing in um, Afghanistan, um, setting up the a form of Sharia law, an extreme version of their perception of Sharia law, where people can only go to school to learn the Quran. And there's existing grievances that are to do with the land. Now, we've seen an uptick of attack in the last year because in those specific areas in the Sahel, there's been a terrible, terrible rainy season, months of droughts. And so there has been existing conflicts, and those has been exacerbated by climate change or the changing climate between herders that are trying to feed their cattle and farmers that are trying to grow their food. And in the middle of that, in the absence of the state, you have armed groups trying to control the situation. It's no surprise that Jibo is being held by armed groups or targeted by armed groups. It's an oasis in an area where there hasn't been a lot of rain. It is of strategic importance, not only for the local population, but also for these fighters who are trying to feed themselves. This is all very much fueled by poverty, but also by climate change. Uh, tell us about the group of women that you met on the outskirts of Ouagadougou, because they weren't from the capital. What were they doing there? Why were they alone? It's it's frightening to see the, the tales of those that have been displaced. And uh, there is entire there are entire neighborhoods or slums on the outskirts of Burkina Faso made up of people that have been displaced from the north. And what's surprising and re- what really kind of shocked me when I went there is that you only see women and children. And when I asked them, where are your husbands? Where are the young men, your sons? Their faces, Tracy. You could see that they were distraught. You could see that they had seen unimaginable brutality from these armed groups. Essentially, most of the men are either killed or decapitated by these armed groups, and their children are being recruited as fighters by these armed groups in, 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 in the Northern Sahel. So we've only have the tales of young women and mothers um, to tell us what's happening in the north. In fact, we can't know. We can no longer travel to these areas. A couple of years ago, Tracy, I was able to go to Jibo. I was able to go to the to the border with Niger. These are no go zones anymore, where the state has completely lost control, despite despite the support of French uh, soldiers and the French military that's very much present in the country. Well, we've seen a deteriorating of the situation in Burkina Faso specifically, and also in neighboring Mali and Niger, all of these countries that have been affected by a wave of attacks, a move forward from these armed groups linked to both Al-Qaeda and ISIL. Nicholas, there's so much still to unpack. I'm never going to have enough time to be able to do it with you. So I'll speed through some of um, the other areas that we do want to specifically address. And and one of those is uh, the role of Mali. Uh, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, announcing he was withdrawing troops from Mali uh, just a day ahead of the recent Africa-EU summit. How is that decision going to play out in the conflict in Burkina Faso? Well, So the French forces have about 5,000 soldiers under the operation named Barkhane. Remember in 2013, they intervened in northern Mali when fighters coming out of Libya were trying to take over Mali. Now, they stopped them uh, in their steps around the region of Timbuktu, which is in northern Mali. At the time, the French were hailed as heroes. Remember that France is a former colonial power in the 60s, all these countries um, sought their independence, yet the French have had a strong or present uh, military uh, presence in the region. Uh, what happened is, in the case of Mali recently, this sudden pullout of the French forces come uh, are the result of two things. One is that we've seen uh, an increased attacks of armed groups despite the French presence. And so public opinion has turned against them. 
not only public opinion, but also those that have taken over power in Mali. There was a coup there as well, where they have taken over power, power and they've turned their back to the French, instead embracing a new superpower in the region, Russia. Russia is stepping in where France is stepping out. We've seen this in the Central African Republic a few years ago, and now we're seeing this in Mali, or we're seeing Russian fighters. I'm not saying Russian soldiers here, but Russian fighters that were previously involved in Syria and in Ukraine, now on the ground in Mali, fighting armed groups, being paid by the government of Burkina Faso, uh, by the generals or the colonels that have taken power in Burkina, Burkina, sorry, not in Burkina Faso, in Mali. Um, And given the circumstances, Emmanuel Macron decided that the French forces should no longer be present in Mali. Now, they're going to rebase in neighboring Niger, perhaps in Burkina Faso, perhaps in Ivory Coast, because we're seeing a surge of attacks. There's also another issue that this war against armed groups in the Sahel and in Mali has become for the French president, for the French, their Afghanistan. They've been there for 10 years. They're trying to find an exit strategy. And remember, Emmanuel Macron is running for re-election this year. It's an issue on the campaign trail. So he, there's been several French soldiers that have been killed in recent times, and that's not going down for his domestic uh, audience back in France. So there's a change of strategy in France, and there's a, there's a change in strategy from the Russians who are stepping in. In, in places where they were present during the Cold War. And I think that we're seeing something quite interesting here. The timing of the arrival of the Russians in the Sahel, in certain African countries, whilst they uh, uh, invade or attack Ukraine is quite interesting. Yes, and you have spoken about this as well because they have gold interests uh, in these parts of West Africa and as the sanctions against them start to bite, that's impacting on their currency, hence their interest in gold would be increased. Yeah, and it's important to note that a lot of Australian companies are exporting gold, are present in these specific countries like Burkina Faso, Mali, in the Sahel, or, or in Guinea where there's also been a coup. Um, The Australian company Rio Tinto owns um, the biggest iron and ore project in Guinea. Uh, It co-owns it, about 45% of of its shares. Then there's obviously Barrick, that's also the largest gold producer in Africa that's present in this region. Mali is one of the biggest exporter of golds in the world and one of the biggest in Africa. It's no surprise that Russian fighters are in these areas because the economies of Mali are facing sanctions, just like the Russians are, from neighboring countries. They're no longer able to export. The the air borders are closed. The land borders are closed. So there is a mutual interest for these countries like Mali and also in the Central African Republic to pay these fighters through their gold exports. And that comes... Uh, at a time where Russia is in need of that gold, and we're seeing the price of gold soaring on the international market. There's also something interesting to note on what's happening in the Burkina Faso front, and and to draw a parallel with what's happening in Ukraine. Um, as soon as the government of Burkina Faso were over, overrun by armed groups and they decided to arm their civilians, we saw the situation not get better, but get worse. So the the arming of local civilians has really exacerbated the situation, not only in Burkina Faso, but also in Mali. These vigilantes or these anti-militia groups have been accused by human rights organization of gross rights violation, of torture, of extrajudicial killings. And the number of those uh, killings uh, are, are outnumber the ones made by armed groups linked to Al-Qaeda and ISIL. So there is a real danger in arming civilians. Uh, this is, uh, for many people observing the situation, this is a job for soldiers, trained soldiers, to deal with the situation. But faced with 
millions of people being displaced and also hunger and climate change, people are desperate and are arming themselves to protect their families, to protect their land. Nicholas, you can answer this next question with one word, please. It's actually a number between one and 10. Given the picture that you have just painted, what chance is there of a united, coordinated effort against the jihadist elements in each of these West African countries? There is already an effort to to work coordinately, to work as a unified front to fight these armed groups. But there's very little effort. Sorry, 10 seconds you've got. (laughs) But there's little effort to deal with the basis of all this, which is poverty and hunger. That's where the solution is. Dealing with poverty, hunger and climate change. That's a way to find peace in these regions. Nicholas, fabulous to have you on the program. Thank you so much. That's Nicholas Hark, West Africa correspondent, Al Jazeera English. And next we'll meet the Black Divers dedicated to finding and helping document some of the thousands of slave ships wrecked in the Atlantic Ocean during the transatlantic slave trade. During the transatlantic slave trade, an estimated 12.5 million Africans were forced onto slave ships and trafficked to the Americas. According to one scholar, it took at least 36,000 voyages, and it's estimated that around 1,000 of these ships likely sank along the way. Tara Roberts is a National Geographic explorer and storyteller who left her old life behind to join Diving with a Purpose a group of black scuba divers searching for these shipwrecks and the history contained within them. She's documented her journey in a new National Geographic podcast series titled Into the Depths. Here's a little taste of that podcast. Through these ships, we could bring lost stories up from the depths and back into collective memory. Just as important, it was a way to help me understand my roots my own family's history, and where I and we belong as Black Americans right now. It's a fascinating journey that is now also the cover story for the March issue of National Geographic magazine. Tara Roberts, welcome to Late Night Live. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Tell me, how did you get involved with this project? How did you find out about it? Oh, it was completely by accident. Um, I just happened to be visiting uh, a museum in Washington, D.C. It was the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And I ended up on the second floor um, and I saw this picture. And it was a picture of a group of primarily Black women on a boat in wetsuits. And I had never seen a group of black women on a boat in wetsuits before. (laughs) So it stopped me in my tracks and made me super curious. And when I looked to um, discover who they were and what they were doing, I discovered that they were part of this group, Diving with a Purpose, and that part of their mission was to search for and help document slave shipwrecks around the world. And it completely floored me. I was like, what? These people who look like me are doing what work? (laughs) So I became really intrigued and wanted to be involved with it. I've seen at the Slavery Museum in Qatar the history of slave divers that were used in the pearl industry there. But how far back does the history of African divers go? That's such a great question. Um, And it's history that I didn't know until I started doing this work and talking to more historians and researchers. And it apparently, as early as the 1400s, West Africans in particular were known around the world for their diving prowess. So Europeans would hire West Africans to come and help salvage um, for ships Our episode five talks about um, the King of England, 
who did just that to have um, a group of Africans come in and help salvage his favorite ship, the Mary Rose. Yeah, there's some incredible stories out there. But how do you go about finding and documenting these shipwrecks? Well, I will say that it is not easy. (laughs) Um, And that's partly because most of these ships are made out of wood. Um, So they were built in the 1600s and the 1700s when that was the primary material. And so when these ships wreck, they splinter, um, they wreck in pieces. And those pieces over time get covered by the sand on the ocean floor. Um, They're often encrusted with coral or marine life has made um, some of these artifacts their home. So it's not like you can be a diver and go down and suddenly see a slave ship somewhere. You have to start in the archives. And it starts with historians and archaeologists who um, use the archives to help pinpoint a location. And this is what was super surprising for me. I had no idea that there were so many records of this time. But it turns out that a lot of these ships were insured. And so when they wreck, the ship's captains or the financial backers want their money back. And so they put in claims. And then the insurance companies investigated those claims. And so there are all kinds of records and court documents that historians and archaeologists comb through to begin to get um, a sense of where the location of the wreck might be. And once they get that location, they use big equipment like magnetometers and sonar scans to scan the ocean floor looking for anomalies. So like even though the the um, the boats were primarily made of wood, they might have had, you know, nails that um, connected pieces together, or there might have been iron on the ship. Um, and so the the equipment looks for those sort of anomalies on the ocean floor. And then once anomalies are pinged, um, then scuba divers go down and start to look at those anomalies with their eyes and with cameras to see if they are indeed um, something worth investigating further. Yeah, I reckon people's hearts must start beating just a little faster when they hear that ping and think, here's another possibility. (laughs) But you mentioned about 1,000 wrecks possibly out there. That's what's been estimated. How many have been found so far? It's a a tricky number um, because some of the ships, even the ships that um, the divers are currently on missions for, are still officially being... um, confirmed. So I think it's really safe to say that fewer than 10 have been found and properly documented. So there's still so much to do. So much, so much. That's like 990 more wrecks up there to work on. (laughs) I think you're going to be busy for a fair while yet. (laughs) Now, look, you know, reading and learning about history is one thing and and it can be fascinating and challenging and all of those sorts of uh, ideas that, that come to mind. But when you come face to face with it, it's a powerful experience, isn't it? So I wonder what happened when you first came face to face with one of these shipwrecks. Um, It is definitely a powerful experience. There's something about encountering actual material evidence from the past and encountering it in its natural environment that makes that history real. Um, And it imprints on your mind. So I remember when I was in Costa Rica, And um, there are two possible Danish ships that are wrecked there. And that's what the team is currently exploring. um, And they're documenting that wreck. And when I came across that anchor below 
it was really surreal. Um, I could imagine the journey of the ship and the, the journey of what happened on the ship. But I could also, and this is the thing that is, I think, really tricky and also beautiful about this work. I could definitely imagine the horrors and the tragedy of the loss of life, um, of the journey over. But I also felt surprisingly really empowered. I felt pride. I felt joy at being able to bring a story that had been lost to history back into memory. Um, I felt a lot of pride in being able to help honor all the people who have been lost in the trade. And I don't know if you know this number, but they estimate that approximately 1.8 million Africans lost their lives in the Middle Passage. And that is not a number that is often taught in the history books. It was a number I didn't know. But to have that many people who lost their lives, um, that many people who are not mourned, who are not grieved, who don't have memorials to them, to be able to go down and to acknowledge what happened and to honor their lives just, I mean, it brings satisfaction so and fulfillment. So that's a really different feeling than what I imagined I would have uh, felt, but it's great and beautiful. And it's the fullness of history and how that impacts on us today and going into the future. Could you tell us the story of the Saint-José, the shipwreck in South Africa? Oh, yeah, that's such a great story. <laughs> um, the Saint-José was a Portuguese ship. Um, it wrecked in the 1700s in South Africa but what they discovered is that the ship actually came from Mozambique. Um, so a lot of people think that the transatlantic slave trade mainly pulled from West and Central Africa. But what this shows is that it also pulled from East Africa. There were approximately like between 500,000 and a million Africans that were trafficked through Mozambique and they would travel around the Horn of South Africa and go on to Brazil and to the Caribbean. So they found out that this ship came from Mozambique and the team is a team of divers, historians and archeologists. When they discovered where it came from and who was in the ship, they decided to bring word of what happened on that ship to the descendant community um, and the group that was on it uh, was a part of an ethnic group called the Makua. And so they brought word back to the Makua. And the Makua descendants celebrated that news. Um, they had a big celebration with music and dance and with speeches. They were really happy to know what had happened to their ancestors. Um, and the highest ranking Makua person there, the chief, um, ended up giving a gift to the dive team. And it was a gift of, well, it was a, a, a sacred vessel uh, that was made out of cowrie shells. And he filled it with soil from Mozambique. And then he charged the dive team with going back to South Africa and distributing that soil on the wreck site so that his ancestors could touch home for the first time in over 200 years. Yeah, and so they did that. Yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? And it, it's the sort of thing that makes the hairs stand up on the back of your yes. neck. <laughs> yeah. They, when they tell the story, so I wasn't there for that ceremony, I went afterwards and I stood at the site and I also met the Makua chief. But when they tell this story, they say that when they went out and they chose an African-American, a Mozambican and a South African to distribute the soil. And they say that the seas were really turbulent um, that day and that it was a really gray, 
rainy, sort of miserable day. But when they went out um, and they distributed the soil, they say that the, the seas calmed down like immediately and that the sun came out. And so the the interpretation um, that the team has and that the descendants have is that their ancestors heard them and their ancestor souls were put to rest. So it's, it's a really beautiful um, story of the power of healing um, that these shipwrecks can bring about. I'm speaking with Tara Roberts, a National Geographic explorer and the host and executive producer of Into the Depths, a podcast that follows a group of black scuba divers as they search for the wreckage of ships that were used to bring enslaved Africans to the Americas. Tara, um, other underwater memorials have been placed at wreck sites also. Could this be the start of something? We know that there are developments in all sorts of areas like ecotourism, but could this be the start of something like aquatic tourism, you know, for, for scuba divers who want to experience something different? I mean, these are some of the most fascinating sites and historical sites in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think that there's a, a tremendous opportunity for memorialization, um, for remembrance work. Um, and I think that there's an opportunity to, to build uh, some things that could add to the ocean ecosystem um, and be really powerful and conservation-minded. I will say that the sites are not necessarily easy to find. Um, and it's because, again, those artifacts are in pieces. They're not easy to, to see. Um, and the teams are not bringing up everything. So there is something down there, but you kind of have to know where to go um, and how to look. So I, I hear you that this could be an amazing way to um, to do some ecotourism, um, especially if people are taught not to touch those artifacts, not to try to, you know, take them away mm. and bring them up. It could be really powerful, but I think there is an opportunity to also um, really create some things around these artifacts that honor them. It would be like going to a museum and you've got a display around the artifact. It could be really, really powerful. Exactly. And all of this raises that importance of who tells stories, who documents history. And I guess this is adding a whole other stream to the history that we already had. Yeah. I mean, there's so many perspectives on the slave trade that haven't been told. Even just sharing the story about the Makua ethnic group um, and their connection to the story. You've got the African-American diver, the South African diver, the Mozambican diver, all of them have different takes on this. And I would say that most of those perspectives have never been examined or explored before. But for us to really understand this history, we have to look at it from multiple points of view. I mean, it's global history with people from four different continents over 400 years. Uh, so a lot of the perspectives have not been shared. And especially those who passed away throughout this journey, I think that they are missing from their voices. Um, their stories are missing from the conversation. Tara, has it changed you at all? Did it make you look more deeply inside of yourself and your own personal history, your family history? Absolutely. I actually didn't know until I really started working on this project that this is maybe a little funny to say, but that there was something a little broken inside of me around the way that I approached history. Um, I, I realized that I was really afraid to look at the past of Black folks and that's particularly because I think the way that much of that past is covered and talked about, um, it's centered inside of Black pain and Black trauma. And 
that's really hard um, to face. And I was particularly, I think, scared to look at my own ancestry um, because my ancestors were enslaved. And I didn't really want to face the fact that they've been owned by someone else. But what happened for me throughout this process is that I learned that there's a way to look at this past that is not centered in the pain and trauma. Um, I think there's a way that that pain and trauma has to be acknowledged, but then there's a way to move through it. Um, there's a way to heal some of the past by looking back and embracing it. And I think that there's a way to celebrate Black lives. Um, I ended up hiring a genealogist as a part of this to see how far back we could we could trace my family roots and to see if we could get to a slave ship. We couldn't, um, but we found out all these details about my great-great-grandpa Jack, who was born enslaved in 1837. He was one of the persons that I was just afraid to look back at. But I discovered that Jack was an entrepreneur. He was a real estate investor. I mean, this is a man who was born enslaved, but he managed to amass like over 175 acres of land um, in a in a slave territory in the south of the United States. He fought in the Civil War in the United uh, States Colored Troops. And he was an activist, like really standing for the rights of freed people once um, the Civil War had happened. So all of that I would have missed out on if not for this work and this project. And now I'm so excited and enthusiastic about finding more of the stories of life, um, of joy, of power, of courage, of resilience that exist in the past. And not just thinking that those stories are just about pain. That's a huge, huge change for me. It's such a fabulous uh, circular story as well. You've got the current, as in you and this team that you've been working with, going back into the past and bringing it back into the present and projecting into the future because it can change the way we look at all sorts of things. Yes, yes, absolutely. Tara, thank you for sharing this journey with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Tara Roberts is a National Geographic explorer and the host and executive producer of the podcast Into the Depths, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll have links to more information on our website, of course. Following on from that discussion, and since Philip is now stranded on the farm, on the next LNL, you'll be able to hear Philip's fascinating interview with Howard French about his book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War, recorded late last year. That's global history from the perspective of Africa. I'm Tracy Holmes. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.